Money FM 89.3, the best of the afternoon update. Eco Money on Money FM 89.3. You're listening to Money FM 89.3. I'm Rachel Kelly, and now it's time for Eco Money, where we bring you the latest in sustainability and finance. So I'm going to start off with two words for you responsible and inclusive. Often, these two words aren't the first to come to mind when you think of financial products such as loans. But Home Credit says these two areas are key to its ESG, that's Environmental, Social and Governance Initiatives. We're going to find out why. We are joined now by Jan Ruzichaka, who is the Chief External Officer at Home Credit. Jan, thank you so much for joining us today. Hello, guys. I'm sending all the best from Hong Kong. So, Jan, I'm interested to find out. I was reading quite a bit about Home Credit and what it is that you guys do. And I was wondering if perhaps we can start off there. Tell us what exactly Home Credit does, because I understand that you have quite a heavy focus when it comes to the underbank. Yeah, very true. So Home Credit is company originally from Czech Republic, a mm-hmm. kingdom far, far away. So even though our company has been created 25 years, you know, in the center Europe, uh, the bulk of our book is now in Asia, in countries like China, Philippines, Vietnam, Indonesia, also India, Kazakhstan, where we are serving the underserved. So we are diversified lender. In some countries, we have a retail banking license. In some other countries, we have a consumer finance uh, license. So everywhere we are regulated by central banks and regulators. And we are focusing on, on mass market people, not only people from you know living in a skyscraper in Manila or Jakarta mm-hmm. or I mean, but real people, farmers, women, minorities, for example, in, in Jakarta, disabled. So these are our clients and we are very proud to serve them because not many other companies are serving them credibly and safely. Big high street banks uh, don't want to touch them because, you know, they can be high risk. And also these, these banks are not focused on creating algorithms and risk model assessments for the mass market. And on the other side, you have uh, various, let's call it bad guys, payday lenders asking or lenders um, interest rates, hundreds and hundreds percent. You have a pawn shops and others. But at the end, money is blood of the economy. And even mass market people not living in a big agglomeration and cities needs to have money to open a new shop, redecorate kitchen or, you know, buy a motorbike to become Gojek and grab a driver. So this is what we are doing. And this is what we are focusing on. Currently having more than 120 million um, customers in our CRM. And we are serving them with our 55,000 employees across the country. Yeah, let's rewind for a minute and let's talk about how serious the issue is of underbanked in Asia. I mean, let's start off there. What exactly or who would you term as being underbanked? What's the criteria there? You have 650 million people living around Singapore in Southeast Asia. And unfortunately, quite a big chunk of them is is without access to credible financial services. If you are unbanked, you are really doing just, you know, cash economy. So either barter, you know, farmers somewhere in in the jungle or cash. You don't have even deposit accounts or e-wallets. So if you are one level up and become underbanked, yes, great. You have an e-wallet or maybe if living in a city's deposit bank accounts, but nobody give loan credit. Uh, you don't have a mortgage, you don't have installments, etc. Because again, you are high risk for most of the secure financial services. And this constitutes a big chunk of people 
living in Southeast Asia. So it's a big problem uh, because if we think about that uh, mm-hmm. uh, 60% of overall GDP everywhere is the consumption and the countries, Indonesia, 300 million people, Vietnam, 100 million people, and so on. We can also talk about the huge countries like China and India. So if a large part of your population is not part of credible, safe financial services, you have a problem also in your consumption and then in your macroeconomy. So, okay, I'm going to throw a curveball at Hongbin here. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so guess. I want, to, I want to see if you can get this right. Across ASEAN, how many people don't have access to a bank or financial institution? So I'm going to just repeat that. Across ASEAN, mm-hmm. how many people do not have access to a bank or financial institution? Something I think that we here in Singapore really take for granted. So I'm going to give you three options. I'm not just going to throw you out there. First okay. option... <laughs> 10 million. Mm-hmm. Second option, 110 million. Uh-huh. Third option, 290 million. B. So you're going for 100, 110 million? I'm going to go right in the middle of those two numbers. The numbers. answer is C. Huh? 290 people really? in ASEAN do not have access to a bank or financial institution when we talk about the underbanked. That's more than I thought. I know. It's more than I thought. I was quite surprised. So, Jan, maybe you can tell us, we, we speak about 290 million people in ASEAN that don't have access to a bank or financial institution. Where are these people? So let's have a Vietnam as an example. Mm-hmm. 100 million people living in Vietnam, more or less. You have five uh, big cities, you know, on a coastline, up from Hanoi via Da Nang down to Ho Chi Minh. So in these five big cities, you have a 35 million people living, 35% of the population. So these people are served by, you know, high street banks, you know, mortgages, insurance, etc. But still you have a 65% of the, of the population not living in a big cities. And they are, these people are underserved. Either because, you know, it was, it was not profitable before for big bank, I don't know, like DBS, mm. somewhere in a job, to build real offline brick and mortar somewhere, you know, in in a small town or in the mountains. So that's one. Or second, because, you know, these people don't have a FICO score. They don't they don't have a risk. They are not part of official financial risk assessment credit bureau. And again, that's why even in the era of digital finance and super apps, lot of banks and consumer finance companies don't want to serve them because they are risky. That's interesting, you know. So you talked earlier about micro loans and how they could potentially help. Maybe you could talk to us about how these micro loans work because you also referenced high interest rates. And at the end of the day, what you're trying to do is improve somebody's economic situation. Um, So how do you balance that? Because at the end of the day, you've got to make money too, right? True, true, true. I think from this perspective, I quite admire central banks and regulators across the Asia. So, so every, you know, concept of social harmony in Asia, you don't want to have a problem on the street. And all the central banks understand, and we support it as well, to have a, some interest rate ceiling. So normally now, again, in, in financial theory, you have two segments that is mm. being understood as credible, banks and non-banks. And non-banks can be consumer finance, fintech, you know, um, super apps uh, serving uh, the mass market. And you have a, some kind of ceiling. We support it as well. But then there is also perk how you can make interest rate really low. So if you are quite large lender like us, more than 100 million people in a CRM, 
and you are you are selling not only money but you are selling products. We are one of the largest financiers of smartphones in Asia, working with Oppo, Vivo, Huawei, Apple, you name it. And then you know that, for example, in Jakarta, currently there is three hundred thousand of your clients that mm. would be willing to buy a phone. So you will you will call to guys from Huawei or Oppo and tell them, hey guys. I have potentially 300,000 clients for you. And I know that your margin is X, Y, Z. And how about you will share the part of the margin with me? So we can offer to the customers zero interest rate, zero person product. So this is how you onboard a client. And this is what we do as well. So for us, smartphone and for many other companies as well, um, smartphone or motorbike or new, new kitchen from IKEA, so this is so-called onboarding products. And you share the margin with the producers, manufacturers, or retailers. So you can get really super low interest or even a zero interest rate to your customers. And then there is a second phase. After onboarding the customer, you are trying to build AI-based algorithmic model of the client to assess real riskiness. And in some quite time, several months, you built a profile of a customer and you understood whether he is he or she is risky or not. And if not, again, you don't need to charge high interest because you know the credibility of the customer mm-hmm. is there. And nobody, honestly, from the credible players wants to mess with collections. You don't want to have a higher NPL. You don't want to have non-performing right. loans. Yeah, and I, sure, I, sure. I just want to follow on from that. When you talk about your NPLs, your non-performing loans, how long does it take for the application process for these loans when you're looking at, you know, reaching remote areas to help them, whether it's, you know, buy a mobile phone or get access to credit so that they can perhaps start up their own business? What's the application process like and what's the turnaround time? Because obviously you want to do the right checks and balances to make sure that they're able to make good on these loans. This is what I love about digital and AI and a big data, because even for newly acquired customers, so you, Rachel, would come to our shop, I don't know, uh, which we share, for example, with Huawei or IKEA or, you know, Kawasaki, less than two minutes based on your Mm. uh, uh, smartphone number, based on your ID. And if you would be, you know, customer already in a CRM, less than one minute. So this is what I, I found really cool not only bringing customer very fast product service, but also this is what I believe that fintech, as we, as we can call it, you know, digital finance, can really bring to the mass market customers. And this is, I think, what also Southeast Asia or Asia at large gave to the world. This fast leapfrog from checkbooks and plastic credit cards to, to super apps and e-wallets, which I think is really cool. And even for me, not being originally from Asia, but mm-hmm. living here for quite some time, I really admire all the fintech and consumer finance companies throughout the region You know that are able to do this AI-based fintech. Really cool. Okay, Jan, I've got another question that we're going to throw at Hongbin now got to keep her on her toes. (laughs) Okay. So this one, how many people in Southeast Asia were pushed into extreme poverty during the pandemic? Are there any choices that you can give me? Of (laughs) course, I've got choices for you. Of course, I've got choices for you. Okay. 4.7 million, Mm -hmm. 6 million, Mm -hmm. or 8 million? 8 million. I'm going to go high up there. 
Oh, see, I got you there. Correct answer is 4.7 million. But it's still a lot. That's the total in extreme poverty. It's now at 24.3 million last year. It's a 3.7% of Southeast Asia's collective 650 million population. And this is up from extreme poverty pre-pandemic that saw 14.9 million in extreme poverty in 2019. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and I know you want to jump in there because you're talking about how microloans can help people post-pandemic, right? Not only about it. I think more largely, again, digital, digital, digital. Mm. Never in the history of the mankind so many people had been grabbed out of the poverty like in Asia in the last 30, 40 years. And again, digital finance and e-commerce is a big part of the story. Last 15 years... And we are here in all the countries uh, for the last 15 years, so we see the big change. That's really digital, safe, credible financial services provided by multiple companies, of course, not only by us, but uh, Indians, Singaporeans, of course, uh, Filipinos. They are bringing people towards the, 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 the credible services. Mm-hmm. And I think this is, this is another thing I admire about Asia that, you know, you have so many startups and fintechs that can really develop something, you know, from scratch in, in a days, not years, and then, then put it on the market, either in e-commerce, finance, fintech. And we as a home credit, we not only do business alone, but we also have a lot of strategic partners. For example, uh, in, in your region, it's Tokopedia from Jakarta. We work also with Gojek. We, we work with Grab. We work with Momo. So also these kind of J product JVs is driving people out of poverty because you have these thousands and thousands of Gojek drivers and, and Grabs and, uh, and all this uh, e-commerce economy. This is something that we are very proud to be part of. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been a great honor. Have a great day in Singapore. Thank you, Jan. You take care in Hong Kong, okay? We've been speaking with Jan Ruzichaka, who is the Chief of External Affairs at Home Credit. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.